0: This is Rory Spiegel and Ryan Rudecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. It is August twenty twenty, and Ryan has moved across the world, um, but we are still finding time to get together and give you guys a, this monthly podcast. Ryan, how are you doing?
1: That's good. It's uh, no different than I am in the next room, pretty much, just talking to you, you know, podcasting the same way we did back in the same country.
0: Yeah, I actually think your connection is better.
1: I, I have the fastest internet I've ever had in my life down here, uh-huh. and when I say down here, I mean I am in Christchurch, New Zealand.
0: Yeah. And if you listeners are observant, they would see Ryan move to New Zealand in the end of July. And, you know, the COVID virus miraculously appeared back there shortly afterwards. And so it may only be correlational, but it is very interesting nonetheless.
1: We did almost go straight from managed isolation to a new lockdown which was going to be very disappointing (laughs) but uh we are on the island that does not have any COVID cases at the time moment so we're hoping to keep that keep it that way
0: cool well you survived the two weeks of quarantine in a hotel with two uh young children and uh and you're ready to go
1: yep yep back to turning my brain back on and uh delivering some podcast all right well why don't we jump in all right. So the first article we're going to do this month is called Musculoskeletal Ultrasound to Diagnose Dislocated Shoulders, a Prospective Cohort. The lead author here is Michael Secco and they're at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Um, and, you know, there's lots of ways to diagnose a shoulder dislocation. In some folks, you can just see it, feel it. Everything behaves like a dislocation. You know, professional athletes, they have dislocations out on the field. They reduce themselves or with training staff no x-ray no ultrasound no nothing so in essence you could almost say that everything we do is potentially excessive in a way this article looks specifically at the diagnostic performance characteristics of point of care ultrasound as performed by emergency physician ultrasonographers all the ultrasonographers included in the study underwent training on the technique a video and practice on actual patients These trained ultrasonographers then performed the point of care study on enrolled patients blinded to the history and any other radiology findings. Sonographers also repeated the scan post-reduction, if performed, to determine successful or failed reduction. The specific technique involved involved a posterior approach in which sonographers followed the scapular spine to the glenoid and then visualized the glenohumeral distance, which they also recorded. So good news first, about half the patients they included in their study had shoulder dislocations and the ultrasound was perfect. 100% sensitivity, 100% specificity, 100% negative predictive value, 100% positive predictive value. You know, basically what perfect looks like. The bad news is that there were only 65 patients included in their study. Um, And then the worst news is that many of the patients had fractures and the ultrasound did not pick these up perfectly. There were 25 fractures in these 65 patients, uh, and 13 of them were these sort of bland, you know, hill sacks or banker injuries, Uh, but then there were 12 significant fractures. And the ultrasound picked up only one of those minor injuries, and you can debate whether that's clinically important or not, but then also missed a fracture of the surgical neck of the humerus. Um, And these are all studies performed by ultrasonography fellowship-trained attendings or those currently in fellowship. So, Uh, Daniel Weingro comments on this article in editorial, and he voices concerns primarily regarding the potential for missed fractures. Um, He likes ultrasound, and he thinks there's still a viable role for ultrasound, um, specifically in settings where radiology might be unavailable um, such as those sports fields, or, you know, for confirmation of reduction, like during a sedation procedure itself, um, in order to prevent the need for potential resedation. If you've sent somebody you know, you come out of it, you send them off to radiology, radiology says, no, it still looks like it's out, but you know, you can just slap the ultrasound right there, intra-procedurally and uh, maybe, uh, re- uh, prevent a resedation. Um, And then this uh, this same topic is also the topic for the clinical controversy of the month in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. And this features Michael April and Michael Gottlieb arguing about the need for routine pre-reduction shoulder radiographs. They take, as expected, opposing viewpoints. But ultimately, I kind of read between the lines on their opinions here that there's not a strict need for routine radiology, nor a strict disutility for radiography. They mention things like the Quebec rule and the Fresno-Quebec modification to that rule. Um, and other pros and cons. And in the interests of time on this topic, I will not go into a deep dive, but rather leave a little something to the imagination for you to discover on your own. The general gist of it is that the ultrasound's gonna miss some things, but just because it misses a few things doesn't mean that it can't be used as an adjunctive diagnostic technique when clinically relevant.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I I use a lot of shoulder ultrasound. I thought this was a great article. It was a nice review all around. The image was nice. The how to actually do the scanning was really good, and, and it's a nice way to kind of get an introduction into this um, procedure. I mean, I think this data pretty surely clear says that if you you know you're probably still need an X ray to rule out the fracture, and so it doesn't eliminate that. I do like it for these. Uh, you know, interprocedural um, uncertainties where you think you're in, but you're not quite sure and having the ultrasound there to check and confirm. So you don't have to send the patient back off for an x-ray and then resedate a patient, so on and so forth. It's also really nice to start learning the anatomy because when, if you decide to do some intraarticular lidocaine, it's much easier to do it under ultrasound guidance once you understand the anatomy. Um, so it has its uses there. I, my big issue with the article is, you know, most shoulder dislocations are clinically obvious. And so, how good is ultrasound on the few where you're not exactly sure? Um, does it doesn't really add anything to clinical exam. And, and obviously with this small subset of patients, it's, it's unclear.
1: Yeah. And then I'd say like both the pro and con, and I did, like I said, I'm not going to go into it because I think really both authors share the same opinion that it, Doesn't need to be routine. They mentioned specific sort of studies in these Quebec rules where they're talking about patients who, you know, they're under 40, they've had previous shoulder dislocations, and, you know, you're pretty confident they haven't had a direct blow to the, you know, sort of injury that's going to put them at risk for a humerus fracture. You know, those are people that you could potentially forego uh, any radiology on and just do either ultrasonography or nothing. Um, You know, and then you have older people who there's a question of, you know, always a question of a fracture in somebody with more brittle bones. Um, where radiology tends to be uh, more clinically indicated.
0: Sure. Yeah. And also like a difficult reduction where it's just not going as planned. Of course. Yeah. All right. right. Excellent. Well, let's move on. So uh, sticking on the topic of ultrasound, our next article is ultra long versus standard long peripheral ultravenous catheters, a randomized controlled trial of ultrasonographically guided catheter survival. And the lead author is in ball. So I think we've all grown quite comfortable using ultrasound to place IV catheters. Um, And with the growth of this technique, we see that we... Uh, the equipment has kind of lagged behind the, the, technical process. And so, you know, when we used to put in catheters prior to having ultrasound, we'd essentially have to palpate a vein or see a vein. And so the catheter itself didn't have to be very long when you start using ultrasound, you start finding all these deeper vessels that look great, um, but can be quite a significant distance from the surface of the skin. And so using standard IVs would leave you quite short and even if you got in the vessel, um, the catheter would be barely sitting in the vessel and the survival of that catheter was very short. And so we moved to long catheters, which were longer than a standard catheter. Um, but even those, uh, were, had, um, a shorter lifespan than ideal. Um, Despite being longer, we're not long enough to get a, a significant amount of the catheter in the vessel. And so there is some thought that we can use even a, a longer catheter, um, ultra long catheters that are up to six centimeters long, um, so almost as long as a midline. Um, but avoiding the kind of necessity of sterility of a midline, which is a much more logistically complex process. So these authors wanted to actually undergo a randomized controlled trial comparing standard long cassators, so the ones that most of us are familiar with in the ED, to these ultra-long cassators, which are 6 centimeters in length and they enrolled a convenient sample of patients at least 18 years old with self-reported difficult access. So this meant they had at least one of the following, a history of requiring two or more intravenous attempts on previous visits, previous requirement of an ultrasonographically placed IV catheter, a peripheral, a pick line, a midline, or a central line, and stage renal disease, receiving dialysis, injection drug use, or sickle cell disease. IV's access was attempted by a trained emergency physician, resident, advanced practitioner, nurse, or technician who attended a two-hour vascular axis didactic session where they were trained in the placement of these long catheters under ultrasonographic guidance. Lines were placed at least two centimeters proximal to the antecubital fossa, and they were inserted under aseptic conditions using a high-frequency linear probe. Patients are randomized to either a standard 20-gauge 4.78-centimeter intravenous catheter, so that's your standard extra-long IV, or the ultra-long 20-gauge 6.35-centimeter catheter. Overall, the authors enrolled 270 patients, 35 in each group, and they found a significant survival benefit in the ultra-long catheter group compared to the standard catheter. group. The median ultra-long survival duration was 136 hours, so 5.7 days, and the median survival for the standard group was 92 hours or 3.9 days. This is a difference at about 44 hours. They went on to do some analysis where they found the optimal length of vein to catheter survival, meaning how much of the catheter was actually in the vein was 2.75 centimeters. In this case, they found that it didn't matter which group you were in, but if 2.75 centimeters of the catheter was in the vein, the survival of the catheter was 5.4 days compared to patients who had less of the catheter in the vein, and it was down to 3.1 days. So obviously, more patients in the extra-long group had a sufficient amount of the catheter in the vein versus those in the shorter catheter group. The most common cause for IV removal was phlebitis and infiltration, uh, which is unsurprising. So I think this is fairly predictable findings. The longer the catheter it is, the more of it winds up in the vessel, and the longer the catheter survives. But even these extra long catheters were not perfect. Only 90 patients, or 68%, in, this, in the ultra long group were able to complete the need for IV therapy without receiving a rescue catheter or another peripheral line. This was compared to 57.9% in the standard group, so better, but obviously not a deal, and it doesn't solve all IV access problems.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's great to have this data because it's you know it's sort of what we would think is the, is the, the right thing but it's always helpful to not make assumptions in medicine and actually go out and test your hypothesis and we all think a longer catheter is going to survive better and it's great these data pretty much bear it out Uh, it's disheartening to see that these catheters don't last forever and they're likely to receive either you know ultimately a midline or the requirement for another extra long catheter ultrasound guidance or some sort of iv access intervention Um, but it is again slightly better with the ultra long which is again reassuring and has face validity I just looked mostly at the safety data here. Um, you know, if you worry about an extra long catheter, maybe more of a nidus for a thrombosis. They didn't actually specifically measure like thrombotic events. Uh, you know, like deep venous thrombotic events specifically. They had talked about occlusion, phlebitis, and those are superficial sorts of things. I don't think these peripheral catheters would be much of a nidus, even at six centimeters, though. So I think that's probably okay, and I don't see any reason to consider the longer catheters less safe. Um, and that's that's pretty much what I was looking for in the most in this article.
0: Yeah, I mean a small. Set, so it's hard to say for sure, but, you know, they're smaller than, than midlines. Uh, the data on midline shows the, the rate of, of thrombitis or um, DVTs is rather small. So you might be able to kind of carry that data over to this.
1: Sounds great. So, ultra. And what's what's next? Ultra. Ultra log (laughs) gatherers. When does it stop?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, so then the question becomes like, what's a midline and what's an ultra long Venus uh, peripheral line, and you know, there's going to be some arbitrary cutoff, which I think at this point is eight centimeters. And, you know, above eight centimeters, you consider it a midline below it. You consider it a ultra long peripheral line. I don't, there's no data supporting one (laughs) or the other, the, the, the risk of complication in both is very minimal. Um, you know, why you need a full sterility for the one that has, you know, 8.1 centimeters long, but you can go, you know, a basic. (laughs) basic aseptic technique for you know 7.9 um, kind of just uh, demonstrates the absurdity of those just arbitrary set points but you know that's what we have right now
1: yeah and uh, more fertile ground for future studies all right well, why don't we move on yep all right the next article in this issue uh, we're going to cover is the thoracic spine fracture in the pan scan era the author here is Remy Bizimungu, and they are at the University of California, San Francisco. Ah, the Nexus Chest CT Study prospective data with so many ways to slice and dice it (laughs)
0: yeah they've got a lot of mileage out of the nexus ct study
1: (laughs) yeah 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 so i mean if you recall so nexus chest you know like just like all the other nexuses there's a nexus head there's a nexus c-spine and we're mostly familiar with that nexus c-spine but they also did nexus chest because they really tried to derive a clinical decision rule to support the selective use of chest ct in trauma this was back in the days where people kind of hoped that maybe we wouldn't just scan everybody from head to toe. You know, the, the golden days of 2011 and 2014, when we used to talk about this sort of, you know, resource, you know, uh, optimization and trauma, but uh, it, it almost seems, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, so innocent back in the day to think that we just wouldn't progress to a day a standard of care where just constant, constant, constant advanced imaging and everybody. Um, but in any event, they tried to come up with this decision rule, and we're not going to talk about the decision rule. Their attempts to dis- to uh, come up with a decision rule, because of, you know, there's a reason why we haven't talked a whole lot about the Nexus Chest decision rule over the last ten years. It's not really something that was clinically usable. Um, but in any event, <laughs> I digress. This is a pre-planned statistical analysis of that prospectively collected data with 11,477 subjects in total. The goal here um, was basically just to describe the frequency and clinical significance of thoracic spine fractures observed in their study. So describe they do. T-spine fractures were present on only two percent of the enrolled trauma patients in their cohort. T-spine fractures were eh, serious more often than not, you know about 60 odd percent, and similarly, um, they all they mostly had associated thoracic cavity injuries about, again, two-thirds of the time. Two-thirds of fractures were posterior column fractures, a quarter were compression fractures, 6% had burst fractures, um, and then half of the people with thoracic spine injuries involved more than one vertebral level. As far as those associated thoracic cavity injuries, rib fractures were common, along with pneumo and hemothoraces, clavicle fractures, and scapular fractures in smaller and smaller percentages. The most relevant news, I think, that comes out of this little study is that in the 198 fractures that they identified on patients who underwent both a CT and a chest X-ray in this cohort, this is about 4,000 patients, the chest X-ray picked up the injury in only 17 of them. So it missed another 180, 181 injuries. Um, so uh, obviously chest X-ray is not useful for picking up thoracic spine fractures. Um, and it also because 6,000 of their patients were actually only received a chest X-ray, you kind of wonder about that actual 2% prevalence considering a large percent of the population, lower risk for thoracic injury, of course, but still 6,000 underwent only a chest X-ray and it likely missed some injuries. So the actual prevalence is probably a little bit above 2%. And the authors don't really add a whole lot in their discussion to these data, but mostly making a few observations. Thoracic injuries are uncommon as we've talked about, but if you do suspect an injury based on significant mechanism or physical findings, you definitely need to be getting ACT. They also noted, generally speaking, a lot of these fractures were not terribly clinically significant neither requiring bracing nor surgical intervention. Bracing was the most common intervention required, about 40% required bracing. But as we are familiar with, that's mostly for pain control and not necessarily a critical intervention. Um, and But 11% did require surgical intervention. Ultimately, they kind of talk about, why well, it kind of wax poetical about this overdiagnosis and the incidental pickup of unimportant injuries as the pan scan era has evolved. Um, but again, so th- I, they... These data pretty much, I think show that when a patient doesn't need a CT, you don't need to go get a CT. but they if they need any imaging at all, you they need a CT.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the key, right? That that most of these injuries are clinically significant. When they are significant, usually there's a clinically obvious finding on your exam. Um, They did note that all the patients with clinically important uh, thoracic fractures were positive on their nexus chest rule, uh, meaning they had some clinically obvious finding uh, that would kind of uh, motivate you to go get the scan. So, yeah, I think, I think, Basically, what you're saying is most people don't need the CT, but if they do, if you do have a suspicion for uh, thoracic spinal fracture, the CT is what's needed. All right. Um, why don't we move on? So let's move on to when you do have to get that CT, and for some reason, you have to get it with contrast. Uh, and our next article is Evidence and Patient Safety Prevail Over Myth and Dogma, Consensus Guidelines hooray, on the Use hooray. of <laughs> Intravenous Contrast Media. So I think the title says it all. <laughs> And we can stop right there. But the lead author here is Jeremy Hinson, and this is a wonderful review of the literature behind the concept of contrast-induced neuropathy and questions its existence as a clinically important entity. The authors highlight the recent publication of the American College of Radiology and National Kidney Foundation's consensus statement on the use of IV contrast media in patients with pre-existing kidney disease, and they downgrade the level of caution afforded to the contrast media. They go go on to point out the data supporting the existence of CN is fairly weak. Essentially, sick patients present to the ED or the hospital, they get a contrast load, and a small portion of them go on to develop an AKI. While this phenomenon is fairly well documented, the causal link between contrast and the kidney injury has never been demonstrated. Basically, sick patients get AKIs for many reasons, and so it's impossible to determine whether it was the contrast or the reason they received the contrast in the first place that caused the injury. Recently, there have been many observational studies that attempt to control for these confounders. Most notably, the, the article talks about an article published by these same authors in Annals, which we reviewed back in 2017, which examined over 17,000 ED visits and compared the incidence of acute kidney injury in patients who were exposed or not exposed to contrast media. And after performing a propensity analysis to control for other confounders, they found no sign of contrast-induced nephropathy in this group. And so the authors conclude that there really is no measurable risk for subsequent acute kidney injury if the patient has a baseline GFR greater than 45. In patients below this level, the evidence is far more sparse. But again, it seems that the risk is far smaller than we previously thought. They go on to review some pertinent recs made by the American College of Radiology, many of which are very important to the management of patients in the emergency department. Most importantly, when a CT with contrast is required for the evaluation of a potentially life-threatening diagnosis, contrast should never be withheld. So that pretty much covers most of the practice we do in the emergency department. It's always amazed me when we're ruling out something like an aortic dissection and, oh, wait, no, the patient can't get the scan because they might have a, they might get a contrast-induced nephropathy, which is crazy, right? Because you know any risk of an aortic dissection is way higher than the risk of a nephropathy due to contrast. Oh that creatinine of greater than 1.3.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it just blows my mind. While they're uh, recovering from the aortic dissection surgery. <laughs> I think it, it, some of it came out of that just the, the use, the overuse of radiology. I think the concerns that uh, maybe from the radiology standpoint that we're just loading people with contrast for these scans that just didn't need to be done. Um, sure. There's probably certainly a little bit of resistance to that. You know, you, we saw right. this all the time in the early 2000s, and maybe I still see it today. The person who comes in who's had 25 CTPEs in the past year, I remember seeing patients like that when I trained in residency at a single center, where it was the only place you could go for, you know, 100 miles. And we had the same patients coming back in and getting scanned over and over and over.
0: Um, yeah. But of course, I mean, that's a whole nother problem entirely, right? <laughs> Writing about this in either blogs or
1: EM news journals, uh, little throwaway magazines, I don't don't mean to characterize them as throwaway magazines because we still write for them, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but we've been writing about this I think for like six years now almost. Ever uh, you know we're just saying you, you it there's no such thing as contrast induced nephropathy if there's no way to treat it or prevent it or anything with pretreatment or bicarb or saline or anything if you can't treat or prevent it it, it may not actually exist and the right. evidence supporting it was just garbage and we use different contrast media. You know the the low osmolar weight contrast media as the different media than they used to use back in the day when they and different volume loads than they used back in the you know early cardiac catheterizations the early phase early CT scans it's just a clinical it's just an anachronistic like it's an obsolete clinical entity uh, that just right. doesn't apply to modern medicine.
0: No, I, I, and I think the biggest take home point, and I'll, I'll get back and do a few other nice clinical pearls, but I think the biggest 10-minute point. If contrast-induced nephropathy truly exists, the risk is tiny, and the risk of actually having clinically important or clinically consequential outcomes, so more than just your creatinine bumping, actually requiring dialysis or permanent dialysis, is infinitesimally small, and much smaller than any risk that you would have if you missed a diagnosis that you needed to get the scan for in the first place. And so from like a clinical decision standpoint, it should be a non-issue. Exactly. So- Briefly, we, we both are fairly passionate about this <laughs> and probably jumped in, and, and you know, Ryan jumped in fast to, to get his point across. But um, they had a few other really nice pearls that I think are worth getting across. One, solitary kidneys should be treated no differently than the general population, which is a huge one, right? There's many times when a patient has a solitary kidney, we think they can't receive contrast. And in fact, the data suggests otherwise. Um, and then most importantly, is patients who receive dialysis do not require... To, re, uh, to routinely reschedule their dialysis to get to, to dialyze off the contrast.
1: Yeah, I always thought that was the most mind-numbing of recommendations <laughs> that you had, that I would, I would get these questions from the radiology tech and be like, when's this patient gonna be dialyzed next? I'm like, you're giving them 30 or 50 cc's of contrast. They're not gonna have flash pulmonary edema and overload when, you know, on the CT scanner. Um, but I would just say, oh, you know, it's probably tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow or the next day.
0: It's usually one or the other.
1: <laughs> you know, just a little white lies to get the study that's yeah. clinically indicated. I usually say, oh, we'll
0: get it done as soon as possible.
1: <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Yeah, there we go. So, you know, I'm, I'm working with their nephrologist to get it scheduled when they know, well, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Something that's not completely a blow off, uh, untrue, but, uh, you know, certainly just checking the box.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is a great review. I think everyone should take a look at it. I think it's another nice thing to bring to your radiology department um, to kind of get rid of these, these arbitrary thresholds where we have to kind of walk through so many hoops just to get a scan on someone who requires the test to to rule out an emergent diagnosis.
1: Oh, we love that topic, don't we?
0: (laughs) Yes, we (laughs) do. All right, so um, and you actually just—I
1: <laughs> can't get to the, top of the topic. I really thought that we were going to have to randomize patients to contrast or not contrast, depending on like you know, with their creatinins, to get the the radiology community to move on this because we've just all all the data that we've ever generated is just this terrible observational data, and you're trying to change hearts and minds with bad data. I mean they shouldn't have necessarily had that standpoint in the first place or taken right. that position the, with, without data, data supporting support it, that standpoint that is pretty terrible. That, the, the, you know, the dogmatic sure. momentum of that teaching. Um, I didn't think we would ever turn it around with just more observational data, but you know, I guess,
0: but have we turned it around? I mean, there's, change. A, there's a, there's a guideline, but I certainly haven't seen any real change in practice <laughs> yet. I still have to jump through, you know, nine hoops to get a scan on someone with a GFR of 40. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'll let you know what uh, New Zealand does over here soon. Enough. <laughs> um, right. So another article here from this month, we'll call this one changes in firearm and medication storage practices in homes of youths at risk for suicide results of the safety study, a clustered emergency department based multi-site stepped wedge trial. Uh, the lead author here is Matthew Miller and the institution that he is affiliated with is Northeastern university. And this is a, article is basically what it says in the title it's an intervention trying to improve the safety of storage practices of potentially lethal means in a family of adolescents visiting the emergency department for a behavioral health concern and the idea is great i mean it's an intervention lethal means counseling regarding either safe medication storage or safe firearm storage Um, and that's you know the underlying principle that this is potentially protective in those at risk for suicide. Uh, the study, however, is a small multi-site study in Colorado across four hospitals uh, comprising seven emergency departments. Uh, and the study, uh, they had some difficulty enrolling and got up to a little bit of a rough start, and they actually had to eliminate some of the steps in their stepped wedge trial, which we'll come back to and is actually fairly important. Um, but in any event, um, they made these modifications to their profile. The intervention is described elsewhere, but it effectively includes targeted counseling to families regarding either removal of weapons from the home or locking up the weapons. Um, And then similar methods of either securing medications with potential lethal means um, or all the medications in the house just in general. And the primary outcome related to, uh, there was basically you know one for fire, firearm access and one for medication access. And it was basically uh, what, whether the firearm access was uh, reduced either based on either removal or improvement of safe uh, storage of pra- uh, firearm practices. There were 3,815 potentially eligible encounters during the two year study period. And the study team was only able to enroll 575. Um, So you can see that already they've selected a really um, a very small subset of all eligible encounters, which can substantially bias the patient population. Uh, and then uh, because of the stepped wedge, about 60% of those encounters fell into the usual care time period. And then uh, as part of the accrual challenge, like I talked about, there's only one step of the wedge and it only involved one hospital rather than stepwise, you know, rolling in a new hospital every few months like they originally planned. So it's almost... Just a pre-post study. It's almost not a step wedge because it's only one step at only one only one center. It's almost a pre-post. Then, from the pre-post standpoint, it was a success. It was like two to three times an uh, an improvement with respect to firearm and medication storage, you know, uh, likelihood um, you know, across the patient population. But, and this is the whole point of those steps in a step wedge. They couldn't actually tie the improvements in firearm storage to the timing of the step at the one hospital that actually did a step. Rather, that actually that hospital that switched to the you know switch had switched to the intervention didn't actually improve any firearm storage until all the hospitals had switched and did not actually improve independently. So in the end, uh, the improvements in firearm storage were just basically part of the background noise and not necessarily related to the intervention. The medication storage, however, did time itself specifically with the interventions. So it's encouraging and discouraging at the same time. This specific intervention, despite its face validity uh, and certainly unlikely to cause harm, can only be described as may or may not be effective. I don't think the study can really definitively show us because of the structure and the limitations of the methods, whether this intervention actually works. A lot of visits were missed their patient population from Colorado may not be generalizable, and as they mentioned, they actually found that they had difficulty enrolling patients because a lot of people were already storing their medications and weapons safely in the home. And then even more critically, the effect of their intervention was measured only two weeks after their emergency, their index emergency department visit, so they have no evidence for a long-term effect on uh, safe storage procedures, either for firearms or medications. And then, of course... These are all surrogates for actual patient-oriented outcomes, either attempts with lethal means or actual successful suicides, which of course you can't, you certainly can't power a study for those because they're so rare. Uh, but again, it's you know, one of those limitations This study tries to really hard to do some, a really good thing, but I just don't think it ever really, it uh, provides any useful data one way or the other on the uh, efficacy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think you summed it up nicely there. On the other hand, though, you know, this is such a kind of a low-cost, practical intervention that, it, you know, it, it probably would take a lot of evidence in the other way to shift it to say maybe you shouldn't tell people to lock their firearms and medications up when you've got a, an at-risk population living with you at home. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we move on? Uh, so our next article is Providing Incentive for Emergency Physicians' x waiver Training and an Evaluation of a Program Success and Post-Intervention Buprenorphine Prescribing. I think there's a growing body of evidence suggesting that medical-assisted therapy with buprenorphine is a life-saving treatment and should probably be started in the emergency department. And there are many barriers to the initiation of MAT from the ED, but one of the major ones is getting ED physicians to complete their x waiver And so these authors conducted a prospective observational before and after study, testing whether a financial incentive program, which provided $750 for the completion of a next waiver training, increased completion rates. The study was conducted in three academic emergency departments, and all active full-time attending emergency physicians were eligible for enrollment. Basically, in mid November 2018, 63 attending emergency physicians were offered $750 as an incentive, as well as $199 of reimbursement for the actual X waiver course um, if they completed the course before December 31st, 2018. Before the incentive, approximately 6% of the full time emergency physician faculty had X waiver training. During the six-week incentive program, 89% of the eligible emergency physicians completed the X-Waiver training. Before the incentive programs, emergency providers rarely wrote buprenorphine prescriptions with a total of two written prescriptions for the 396 opioid use disorder-related encounters, so a rate of 0.51 prescriptions per encounter. After the incentive program, the rate of buprenorphine prescription went up to 16%, so a pretty big increase. So I think it's fairly compelling data and not surprising. If you give people money, they are more likely to complete any task. Although we can't say the increase in buprenorphine prescriptions is entirely due to the X waiver as a number of other interventions were done at the same time, including the development of buprenorphine treatment algorithm an educational campaign, expanded access to certified recovery specialists, and a four-week pilot program in which hospitals staff the bridge clinic in the ED for one day a week. That being said, I think this is a fair way to ensure your physicians complete their X waiver if this is a specific roadblock preventing the initiation of MAT in your shop.
1: See, this is exactly what we're trying to get at in the previous article I was talking about. It's a before and after. There's a financial incentive period, and you're looking at stuff that happened afterwards. You have no idea if the financial incentive actually changed anything because there are so many other confounding interventions at the same time. They have three sites they could have done a stepped wedge trial. They could have rolled them all out at different times and kind of controlled for the effect of those other confounders, potential confounders. So you don't really know if paying people helps. It has some face validity, but you don't really know. And people who were, who were who uh, completed the program said they would have done it for less. So I mean, they would have done it for less than five hundred dollars. Even they would have two fifty, dollars hundred dollars. So You know, who how much? What does the lowest amount you would have done it? And then. If it's only a hundred dollars, why wouldn't you have done it anyways? Just because everybody else is doing it, there's a cultural change in the department. There's, if Rory and I are talking on this podcast about how important it is all the time. <laughs> I mean, I think mm-hmm. I think we take we deserve credit for this, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Of course, uh, we should um, get the so. I, I just happen. don't know if, if you have to provide a, a financial incentive for this, and I don't think these data show that that's a that's a conclusive necessity either.
0: No, I mean, I to be fair to them, I think there was a logistical reason they couldn't step wedge. I think there was an actual deadline of December 31st to get the actual financial incentive. Um, and so I don't think they could have organized it to be a stepwise wedge. Um, but you're right. I mean, there are so many things that can confound this data. I, I mean, the big issue is we should just get rid of X waivers and and then no yeah. one would have to actually complete yeah. this training financial incentive or another. I mean, it's
1: just a relic of a of a. Of a, of a of, of pre-existing biases basically against people with substance abuse problems it has nothing to do with the medical training and so on and so forth or efficacy of these you know it has nothing to do with that it's right. it's just a relic it's just, yeah yeah
0: you could save a whole lot of money and time and lives all right well why don't we move on
1: Alright, uh, this next one I'm just going to spend a really brief amount of time on, mostly out of academic interest. This one's called the PROM-ED, ed Development and Testing of a Patient-Reported Outcome Measure for Emergency Department Patients Who Are Discharged Home. The lead author of this article is Samuel Valencourt, and he's at the University of Toronto. Um, and there's a, just a, this is mostly out of academic interest, like I said, uh, because there is a growing movement tied, unsurprisingly, to Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, or PCORI, funding. And it's raising awareness of patient-reported outcomes as valid endpoints rather than just clinical or surrogate endpoints. This product then is a rather lovely creation stemming from clearly exhaustive efforts of its authors to refine a tool to start getting at the aspects of care valued by patients. These authors relied on four previously identified main outcome domains of greatest importance to patients, which is symptom relief, understanding of their health concern, an element of reassurance and providing them with a plan they could follow, And they created this final product after cognitive testing with patients and expert Delphi consensus of winnowing down from a much larger set of questions to this 22-item brief survey of patient-reported outcomes. Um, I'm not going to go into real deep, big detail, because if this is of interest to you, you can pull it out of the the journal itself. Um, But frankly, just looking at it, I mean, this is a million times better and more reliable than Press Ganey at actually measuring whether a patient felt that like they received effective care delivery in the emergency department. It could be applied simply to everyday emergency department processes as a survey instrument, or, and I think this is part of how the author's intended to be used, it could also be incorporated into research protocols and other interventions to determine the effect of various care pathways on patient perceptions of their own care. So lovely piece of work. If you're interested in patient-centered uh, outcomes research, take a look at it. Um, otherwise, I will end here.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I thought, that the uh, certainly better than the Ganey score. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we move on to our, our, our next and final article? And this one is the, Emer- the emergency department trigger tool, a novel approach to screen for quality and safety events. So there, there's a growing focus on tracking adverse events in the ED and, and quality improvement. Um, I'm sure many of us are well aware of the metrics such as 72-hour deaths or bounce backs requiring admissions, admissions requiring up triage that are used as measures to identify potential adverse events and harms. But there is data suggesting that such messages are fairly insensitive and prone to missing a large number of events. And so these also suggest the use of a trigger tool as a more sensitive alternative so a trigger tool basically consists of a regular review of a random sample of records by a first level reviewer typically a nurse for the presence of predefined triggers which are events that increase the likelihood that an adverse event is present finding a trigger prompts a detailed review of that chart for any adverse events that might occur and identified adverse events then undergo confirmatory second level physician review So these authors set out to build an ED trigger tool. In addition, as part of their tool, they aim to create a computerized query that automates the search for triggers, eliminating this initial manual screening step. They conducted a retrospective observational study from a single urban emergency department and looked at data from 92,859 ED visits. They derived a data-driven set of triggers, which began at 104 identified candidate triggers. And then they applied these to the 92 plus thousand visits. All the visits with at least one trigger were identified and it was quite a bit, 82%, so had at least one trigger in them. And then they took a random sample of those triggers for additional review and wasn't fully random because they wanted to make sure that all triggers got at least 10, were included at least 10 times in this manual review they also reviewed a random sample of non-trigger visits to estimate the adverse event rate for trigger negative records so out of the 92 plus thousand patients one of the 97 candidates were identified in 83% of the patients overall there were 374 adverse events during this time period and If a chart was trigger positive, the rate of adverse events was about 21.7% versus only 3.3% and triggered negative. They then refined their list of triggers from 97 to 30, and the positivity rate dropped from 83% to 57%, so still a lot much better. Um, And in patients with at least one of these triggers, the rate of events was 22.1%. When the authors removed adverse events that were present at ED arrival, so not things that were caused by the ED itself, this rate dropped to 10.3%. Increasing the threshold to four or more triggers increased the adverse event rate to 17.2% from 103 and then increasing to nine triggers increased the event rate to 34.8%. And doing this didn't drop the sensitivity too much. So initial one trigger, it was 99.4, dropped to 96.9 and down to 94.7 when you went to four or 10 triggers to simulate an actual chart review. More importantly, this increase in the number of triggers needed to stimulate a chart review actually... Decrease the amount of charts that were positive. So it went from 53% to 11.8% to 1% respectively. So far less charts that would have to undergo a manual review if you increase the amount of triggers that would cause one. So I think it's an interesting concept. You know, you can look at this almost like it's a decision rule, right? That you're trying to derive a set of triggers that would predict an event. And obviously this was derived from a single sample population. So obviously you'd have to validate it from a different sample to make sure that it was consistent. They're a little unclear what an adverse event was and how it was defined. You know, they, they, they go on to define them as medication-induced, surgically-induced, or, or treatment-induced, but they don't really specifically get in what an actual event was and how clinically important each event was because you can imagine some events are, you know, never events. as something you would never want to happen where others might be far less important. Um, so you always want to balance what you're actually predicting with the amount of actual work it would take, you know, how many manual charts do you have to review it? You can imagine if you're doing a massive electronic chart review and 53% of the charts are positive, um, that's going to create a lot of work to run through each one of those charts to identify adverse events.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is a, this is a, it's a nice piece of work and I think that the, the way the authors describe it being used, and if you look in the very end of the discussion, they talk about it, You know, it's just meant to be a time saver. It's not meant to be an exhaustive thing that comes up with the highest yield, specifically of sensitivity or specificity for identifying patients with adverse events. It's just supposed to cut down the amount of work you do trying to make sure that you're you know, auditing a little bit of your safety processes in the emergency department. Um, this is just the first step of uh, you know multiple steps of their investigation process. Um, and I think it's uh, going to be interesting to see how they turn it out when they start using it in a more pragmatic fashion, um, when they start their little multi-site survey and look at the usability of it and try to actually implement it in the electronic health record like through, uh, they say, they're going to use Epic ASAP. Um, so I look forward to seeing more work from this group.
0: Yeah. And I think anyone, anybody who's involved in, in a QI and quality improvement, this is definitely an article to read. All right. Excellent. And that is August. That is. That wraps us up um freezing cold august day down here let me tell you (laughs) oh we almost avoided a whole a whole podcast without talking about the weather
1: well um, but this this is interesting though right i mean my weather is very different than your
0: weather today that's true our weather also was often very different so (laughs) i'm not sure how much the listeners care yeah
1: well it uh, started out pretty, pretty frosty today at four degrees We'll get up to, I think, 13 degrees. We had a little bit of low fog over the city this morning. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and you start clinical work in a few weeks? Yeah, two weeks uh, for my first shift. So what we all want to know, because if you listen to the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast it, you, and you read all the articles, it really makes you think that Australia New Zealand is just full of druperidol. And so, when you start working clinically, we really want to know how much your tru- is actually in the emergency department. Yeah, I'm looking forward
1: to using paracord again. I know it's back in stock in the United States, but it's not yeah. as widespread as it once was. Not as widespread.
0: Sure. My my old shop, I had it and used it like it was going out of stock. Yeah, it's a floor um, wax and
1: a dessert topping.
0: Yeah, I found it fantastic. But when i when I moved shops, we no longer have it, and it makes me very sad every day.
1: Yeah. So uh, I don't know what else to... I guess this is at the banter section, huh?
0: Yeah. No, I think that's Outtakes it. I think we'll, banter be, at the end. we'll be back in September um, where you can report on your paradol use and we can run through a whole nother set of great articles. Sounds great. All right. Well, until then, this was Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Foundation.